Thanks, Daniel. Well, my name is Ron Cole, and I'm one of the pastors here at Hillside as well. Um, And just let me begin by wishing all of you a very blessed new year. Uh, Our prayer is that you experience God's fullness during this coming year. Uh, We pray not that it's necessarily an easy year, but that you know God's presence and you grow deeper in Jesus Christ during this coming year. A couple of things, actually, by way of announcement before we get into the sermon. First of all, kind of the good news, and that is that next week, Sunday, we will have drawings for you to look at about potential expansion, okay? New nursery stuff, classrooms, and so on. Next week, Sunday, we will actually have something for you to look at. I promise you that I will draw it myself if somehow something happens. But it is, it, we've seen them, they're there, we have them next week, Sunday, and then we'll have some opportunity for you to look at them, reflect on them, and then about a month later, we'll vote and say, okay, is this where we feel God is calling us to go? And then we'll see what money we can raise and decide what we really are going to actually do. So um, there's that process. That's the good news. The sad news is that uh, Kevin Krondike, our minister of music, uh, has felt called by God to, uh, to another position. Uh, not in a church, but he's actually going to start selling real estate. He's going to begin a new job. And so he's going to be leaving us here at Hillside. Um, we don't have a, a transition set yet. He's willing to work with us. Um, he's been here about five years, so we're thankful to God for that, and uh, we'll form a group to, to find a new minister of music, and so I uh, just ask for your prayers for Kevin and his family in this transition, but also for Hillside as we also are transitioning here, and so we ask just God to just give us wisdom as we uh, begin a process, and again, we'll have th- time to, uh, to thank Kevin as we go uh, further on and as we get closer to a uh, time when he does indeed leave us. It's the beginning of a new year, and we're going to start a new series here, and the title of the series that we're going to work on is called Five Great questions. All right, five great questions. What we're going to do is ask five questions and give five answers. And maybe what makes this a little different, at least for some of us, uh, many of us will kind of recognize this, but for some of us, it might be a little bit different because these great questions that I want to ask are not from me and they're not from Daniel. They're actually from something called the Heidelberg Catechism. (laughs) They're actually from a document that goes back 452 years now, all right? It is in a document that was written a long time ago, again, over 450 years ago, back in, in 1563, all right? And, and, and it's a catechism, it's a teaching tool of this church and of many other churches. And, and it's a series of questions and answers, and we're going to look at five of those. Um, the, the catechism was written in Heidelberg, that's maybe a good reason it was called the Heidelberg Catechism, which, was, which is currently present-day Germany, and, and it was, at the time it was written, part of what is called the Holy Roman Empire, okay? I got a map here just to kind of give you an idea of where we're talking about. You got France here, you've got Switzerland there, you've got the Netherlands there, there it is, all right. And this is where Heidelberg is, right there, okay, in that area called the Palatinate, okay. That's present-day Germany at that time. Again, it was part of the Holy Roman Empire, and it was kind of this area, all right. So we're going to take a look at five questions from the Heidelberg Catechism, and that's what I want to primarily do with you in the next few weeks. But as I was working on this for the last couple of weeks, there was one question that kept coming back into my mind over and over and over again. And the question is maybe one you ask, and it's one I want you to if you're not asking, and that is why? Why, why study a catechism? Why, why, why look at this? I mean, why look at something that's, that was written 450 years ago? Do you know how much has changed in the last 450 years? Do you realize how different our lives are? Why, why look at something that is almost 500 years old? Why, why, why look at something that was written that long ago? Why... Why look at something, and this is true for some of us, but why look at something that, that nearly bored me to death when I was younger? Some of, us, some of us were raised in churches that taught the catechism. For me, it was Wednesday nights. And, and some of us have really bad memories of going to church and studying this thing called the Heidelberg Catechism, all these questions and answers, and it's like, seriously, Ron? 
Come on, I, I, that was just so dead. It was so boring. I want to suggest that the Heidelberg Catechism is not dead, that it is an amazing document, that it is a, a beautiful teaching tool. And the problem isn't the catechism. The problem is the way our, we've taught it and so on. And so that's part of the reason I want to do this, because I think it's so beautiful. I think it's so powerful. So why, you know, why look at something that's old? Why look at something that nearly bored me to death? Why look at doctrinal stuff? I, I mean, come on, I, I, I need help living my life. It's a good question, right? I mean, I, I think about it. I think about the Vanderhills this week getting news that their 13-year-old has leukemia. And I think, you know, and, and, and a lot of us, when we think about catechisms, when we think about confessions, when we think about these things, we think about kind of thinking abstractly and doctrinally and, and, and kind of saying, man, I just need to get through life. My marriage is falling apart. Our kids are driving us crazy. I, our, our kid was just diagnosed with leukemia, whatever it is. Can't you just tell me? And, and, and I think we'll see by the end. Stick with me on this we'll see by the end that the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism is just so powerful, and I want to suggest that it is what we need to hold on to in the coming year because it says, what is my only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And if there is one thing that will carry us through the the coming year, it is knowing that truth, that I belong to Jesus Christ. That is my hope. And, 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 and so this is not just about doctrinal stuff, but, but why do that? And then, and then perhaps what I think is maybe the best question and the one that we struggle with the most is, is why not just study the Bible, right? I mean, this book is the word of God. Why not just study this book? This book is infallible. The catechism is not. Why not just study the Bible? Why look at something like a catechism? What's the value of that? And, and, and so I wanted to do kind of a 10-minute introduction, but it's going to be the whole sermon, Okay. It's going to be the whole sermon, and so stick with me on this, because I think this raises some really interesting issues about what it means to be part of a church, and what it means to be a Christian, and what it means to be at the tail end of 2,000 years of church history, okay? And so this, this really does matter for us in everyday life. But the, the question I kind of want to ask you with this, this morning is, is, why should we study a catechism? Why, why should we look at a document that's, that's 450 years old when we have the word of God right here. Why don't we just study that? Let's think about that together, okay? The first thing we need to understand, and and this needs to be said clearly, and I think it's true not just here, but of churches that hold on to creeds and confessions, and not all churches do this. The majority through history have, okay? The majority of history have, through history, have held on to, to creeds and confessions. But every church that holds on to creeds and confessions that I know of, every church also affirms and mainly affirms that the Bible stands alone as our final authority. Okay, there's no question about that. The, the, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, the Belgium, whatever, we wanna, none of those things have the authority that the Bible has, okay? The Bible alone is what we call God's word, all right? We think God speaks through this word, that God is God-inspired, that this is where, where God speaks to us primarily. It's God's word. The Bible alone is what we call infallible. It does what it's supposed to do. The, the, the Bible is what we call sufficient. It contains all we need to know about God and about us for our salvation and for how to live in this world, okay? And, 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 and so it teaches us everything we need to know, all right? And it's clear enough. I, I want us to be honest about something. The Bible is not completely clear, okay? And, and, and if you struggle with that and say, well, it should be. If I'm a Christian, I should be able to read this book easily. I want to say... You know what, there's, in, in Peter, I forgot to look at the reference, but Peter, in one of his letters, he says, I struggle with some of the things Paul said. I don't understand all of them. 
That's in the Bible, okay? So the Bible says it's not always easy to understand what's going on here, all right? But it is clear enough, okay? You can, you can get the good news about Jesus Christ from this book. It is clear enough. And about this point, I was thinking, well, we better not do the catechism at all. Let's just preach scripture, right? I mean, I kind of defeated myself. The Bible stands alone as our final authority, but, but, and, and, and here's why we need to kind of think about this. And, and all of us need to recognize this, okay? If you come out of a tradition where you said, no creed but Christ, a lot of churches these days say that. No creed but Christ. We don't have any creeds. We don't have any confessions. We just take the Bible. The Bible stands alone as our final authority, but let's be honest about something. It's not always easy to understand the Bible. It's not always easy to understand what the Bible is saying. Let me give you some reasons for that. This book was written over a period of 1,500 years, from Moses and Genesis and so on to the end, the last book written, whether that was Revelation probably, but, but, but from the beginning to the end, it was 1,500 years, it, it, and that's a long time. It was written in, in at least three different languages, primarily Hebrew and Greek, but also some Aramaic. It was written by about 40 different human authors. Okay, We believe God inspired it, but, but it's kind of 40 different in situations, and, and their personalities came through, um, and, and one of the key factors, and I hope we can say this without, it's just long. I mean, it's long. The King James Version, um, and that was the easiest one for me to get numbers on, 788,280 words, okay? That's a long book. Let me just give you some, some reference numbers. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis, classic children's story, 36,000 words, okay? To Kill a Mockingbird, Harping, Harper Lee, 99,000 words, Okay? So just under 100,000, right around there. That's a common novel. Moby Dick is a little bit longer, 206,000, okay? It's 206,000 words. One of the longest novels written, Leo Tolstoy, War and Peace, is 590,000. Let me just tell you, no human beings actually ever read that book. (laughs) People will tell you they have, but no, I'm sure somebody did, but I didn't. I mean, most of us look at it on the shelf and just say, no way. And, and that's one book written by one person, and, and, and there's so much. Again, so we go to Scripture, and there are 788,000 words. You say, okay, it's written over time. It's written all these things. And, and, and to try to say, okay, so what does it say? What's the essence? What's the core? And, and not all Christians have agreed on what it says. I mean, from the very beginning, as, as I said, Peter says, some of the things Paul writes, I don't understand. They're not very clear to me. I don't, I don't get all of it. Paul writes this to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. He says, there are false teachers, and, and their teaching will sp- spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. And I, and I underlined that, I bolded that, because what I want us to recognize and in, in, in where we come with creeds and confessions is recognizing throughout the New Testament, one of the things the, that Paul talks about, that others talk about, is that there is a faith. There is the truth. There is the faith. There is a core. There is an assen- essence to the essential core of, of what Christianity is all about, okay? And, 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 and so Paul is saying, you know, they, they, they went away from the truth, so the Bible stands alone as our final authority, but, but it's not always easy to understand the Bible. People didn't always agree on it. And, and so early on in the church's history, okay, early on in our story, again, this isn't just kind of, what happened is the church adopted what are called creeds, okay? And, and, and what creeds are, are they're summaries of the Bible's teaching, okay? It's trying to take this 790,000 words, 
790,000 words and saying, okay, can you put it into something shorter? Can you, what's the core? What's the essence? What do I really need to know? What are the critical beliefs of the faith? And, 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 and just trying to distill this down. The fact is we all have to do this. Even all these churches that say no creed but Christ, no confessions, no creeds, the fact is they have statements of faith, and that's really all a creed is. And, and, and so what we're trying to say is, you know, early on the church recognized that we need some help, okay? Understanding what the faith is. Hebrews 4 verse 14, there, the author says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly what? Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Again, there's that idea of the truth, the faith, the faith. Again, back to 2 Timothy 2. And the things that you have heard me say, Paul is saying this, the things, the truth, the faith, the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Okay, so what we got is, 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 is the early on the church recognized and, and said, you know, we need to figure out a way. How do we put this in, in, into just the core, the essence? How do we summarize it? How do we say what's essential? What's, what are the critical beliefs of faith? And they said, all right, let's make up a statement. Let's gather together the truth that Paul was talking about, the faith that the, uh, the, you know, that, that the uh, author of the letter to the Hebrews was talking about, and let's try to articulate it. And so these creeds are often I believe statements. That's what credo means, I believe there are three major ones, okay? The church adopted creeds. The first one is the Apostles' Creed, okay? This is as early as 180, 200 AD, so fairly early. And, and, and just let me tell you something. If you don't know this, you should. It wasn't written by the Apostles, okay? It's based on the teachings of the Apostles. At one point, and this is why we have to be careful about all these things, okay? I want to I make a case this morning for saying these are beautiful documents, these are beautiful ways to summarize and to codify and to, to identify the critical beliefs of the Christian faith. I want us to, to know that, but, but sometimes the church gets it wrong. I mean, at one point, the church was teaching that there were 12 apostles. Each one contributed one line to the Apostles' Creed. Now, nice idea, great story. It preaches well. It's just not true, um, which kind of matters. And so, and so that's why these things, on the one hand, I want to say they're, they're really good, but on the other hand, they can become really kind of confusing and so on. So we have to be really aware of that. So not written by the apostles, but based on their, on their teachings. And, and this one is 108 words. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, his only begotten son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And, and many of you could go on and we could say the whole thing. It's only 108 words. Pretty good job. <laughs> Taking under 800,000, just under 800,000 and going down to 108 and, and, and that Apostles' Creed became just an absolutely essential part. What it, what it was probably initially used as was a baptismal confession. When somebody was going to join the church, what they would do is they would stand up and you'd say, what do you believe? And I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And this would give them the language. This would give them the essence. This would give them the core. And, and I want to just tell you, one of the reasons it's valuable to memorize something like the Apostles' Creed is, is that in some ways... This is one of the best tools we have to say, what do Christians believe? And, and, and when people start to raise questions about these beliefs, I think we have to raise questions about whether they're holding on to Christianity. Now, I don't decide whether somebody goes to heaven or hell, okay? That's not my job. But, but I do know that through the ages, as people have looked at Scripture, as the church has looked at this book, as the church has looked at the, the faith, they've said, you know what, these are the things. And even churches that don't have creeds, that don't affirm the Apostles' Creed as a creed for the church, they would say all these things are true. You know, that God is the Father, that God is the Creator, that Jesus Christ is His Son, 
his only begotten son, our Lord, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin. And, and, and when people start to mess around with those things in the Apostles' Creed, it's a big, big, big red flag. And, and, and if you kind of want to say, hey, this is the core, th- that's what the church did. It said, we've got to somehow identify that. So there was the Apostles' Creed, all right? The next one was the Nicene Creed. And, and, and this is kind of how these things work, okay? Again, I, I was a history major, so th- I love this stuff. I hope you find it at least interesting a little bit. But what happens is there's a guy by the name of Arius. He's a preacher, all right? And Arius says, I can agree with everything's in the Apostles' Creed because I believe Jesus is the Son of God, but I don't believe he's really equal to God. I don't believe he's the same as God. I believe he's kind of something less. He was created by God. He came out of God. I, so he could affirm everything in the Apostles' Creed, but, but he understood it in a way that the church went back to the Scriptures. And the church says, hold on. Is that right? Is Jesus not the same as God? And, 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 and the church came back and says, no, the, t- the Scriptures teach us that he is. And, and it's really important for us to understand this. And I mean, the fact is, this is what Jehovah's Witnesses teach today, Right? What they say is Jesus was a God. You want a contemporary, those people come knock on your door. They say Jesus was a God, but he was not God. He was not the same as God. And, and this is where we say, big question. This is why if you tell me that you're meeting with a Jehovah's Witness and you really like what they're saying and that you're going to believe what they believe, please talk to me. Because we've got we to look at Scripture seriously. But again, the creed helps us do that. So this creed contains this line and, and, and kind of indirectly responds to that. The Son is begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, okay? He is. What's true of the Father is true of the Son. Jesus is God. Now, you and I, most of us here kind of say that, and it's like, yeah, no problem. you got to understand, this is 325 years in the church's history. It it wasn't, like, really easy. We kind of act like it's easy. It's not. The church struggled to say, no, this is one that's essential for us to hold on to, all right? That, That the Son is the same essence of the Father, a little bit longer on this one while we're doing words, 218. All right, so you see how this kind of grows, right? You see how it gets a little bit longer. Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed. Um, it'll get, the reason there's two dates there, 381, it was, it was revised just a little bit in 381. So it's kind of the final version there. And then the Athanasian Creed is the third one that many churches hold to. Uh, somewhere in the 400s A.D. Um, and, and this one focuses on the Trinity. I'm not going to get into it a lot. And... I just, I, I pasted it into a, a document and then counted the words, and I don't know if it's significant or not, but it's, yeah, 666 words. That's the English translation, okay? It wasn't written in English. So I'm going to write to the people who did this and say, can you just add a word or take out a word? Because I just, things that are 666, I don't like, okay? All right, so, so you, right, that, that just, you understand where, in a sense, we need these things. The Bible is, yes, it is the word of God, but, but I need a guide. And I need somebody to help me understand what's the center of it, what's the core of it, and, 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 and what, what, where can I disagree and, and with other Christians, and where can I not? And, and, and these creeds are what are called ecumenical creeds. And, and what that means is they're basically adopted by all the churches. This is before there were any major church splits. And, and, and so, again, even cre- churches that don't have creeds basically affirm, if they're Christian churches, everything in these creeds. Now, a few things to say about creeds. They are not at the same level as Scripture. Please know that. The, the Apostles' Creed is not Scripture, okay? It's not, it, 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 it's not infallible. It, it could be wrong. And, and one of the things we've got to recognize, and I think this is why we get a little worried about creeds and confessions, is the majority is not always right, Okay? 
So yes, this is what the majority of the church has said, but the majority is not always right. So we need to keep going back to Scripture. But again, the creed is a great guide to going back into Scripture. They are extremely valuable. Um, they, they identify the core of Christianity. I've said that already. And, and, and this is the one that I want to think about with you. Okay, this is one that I think is, is interesting and challenging for a lot of us, especially in, in the United States. Um, and because, again, we've had so much of saying what we've got to do is go back to the beginning and, and, and go back. But part of what we recognize in a creed, part of what a creed shows us and what we, what we affirm by affirming creeds and confessions is that we recognize that the Spirit is alive in the church. We recognize that the Spirit is alive in the church. Look at this from John 16, verse 13. But when he, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own, He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Now, there are some who say, well, yeah, the Holy Spirit did that. They inspired Paul and and, and John and the others who wrote the New Testament. But after that, the Holy Spirit got quiet. In one sense, when we say it's Scripture, yes. The canon is closed. The Bible is the Word of God, and we're not going to add anything to it. But... But one of the things we need to recognize, and I want to challenge you to think about this and ask what it means, because I I think it's really significant, is that the Spirit just didn't stop acting in the church, but the Spirit guided the church. We say that about the Bible. I mean, the New Testament really wasn't put together finalized form until 300-something, okay? And what we say is we can trust that this is God's Word. Why? Because the Spirit was guiding the church to put the right books in. So, so we have to, I mean, if we're going to say Bible alone, we're saying that the Spirit directed the process of putting this book together, okay? And, and we have to affirm that. And, and, and one of the questions I want to ask when, about this whole thing and, and get you thinking about it, I've been forced to think about it recently for some reasons, but, but is there not perhaps in me and maybe in you and in our culture what we might have to identify as pride or arrogance, when we sort of say, I don't need any of that church history. I don't need any of the last 2,000 years. I can just go back and read the scriptures, and I'll get it right. Really? On your own, you're going to just jump 2,000 years back, and you're going to get it right. No, we have got 2,000 years of church history, and it's not all right. There's a lot that's wrong. But for us to pretend that that tradition doesn't matter... Now, it's dang- I know I'm not putting tradition on level of script, but for us to pretend that, the fact is, I, as far as I can recall, I have never preached a sermon here where I didn't use what are called commentaries, where I didn't look at what other Christians said about what the Bible says, because I don't think that I'm smart enough to just go and read it myself and say, this is right. Now, those commentaries are not the word of God, but, but friends, do you kind of understand where it can look arrogant? I don't need, I don't need Athanasius. I don't need Aquinas. I don't need Augustine. I don't need Calvin. I don't need any of those guys. I just need the Bible because it's just me and Jesus. No, those guys were all fallible. No question about it. But for me to think that I can pretend there's not 2,000 years of church history seems to me a little bit arrogant. And so I think some of us need to say, what does that look like? And, and we'll come back to that, okay? We'll come back to that. So the church adopted creeds, but there were still challenges, okay? Uh, there were still questions, all right? H- how do we best teach the faith? What about a fuller understanding of the faith? I mean, again, we're only at 666 words with the longest of the creeds, and, and, and there's a lot more to be said. And to be. What about a fuller understanding of the faith? 
And, and then there are new questions to be dealt with, all right? And, and especially this became true at the time of what we call the Reformation, the 1500s. Um, I don't want to do all that history, but you got, you got Martin Luther, you know, you've got the, at that time in, in 1054, until then there was basically one church. In 1054, you got the Orthodox Church and you got the Roman Catholic Church. After 1517, the game is just up. And you got churches going all over the place. You got Lutheran churches. I mean, Luther kind of started this thing. But Melanchthon, who was a Lutheran, yeah, people said he's different than Luther. And you got Zwingli and Calvin and, and all of these men of Simons, all these other folks who are talking. And, and, and all of a sudden, it becomes really important to say, okay, what do we believe? And, and, and to articulate the faith. And so what happens next is groups of churches adopted confessions and catechisms. There were other confessions and catechisms, but these are the ones that we hold to, and they, and they kind of come out of that. Now, let me, let me highlight something that I, I think is really important again, and that is when I talk about adopting creeds, the church capital C, because basically every church owns these together. These are ecumenical creeds. When we talk about confessions, when we talk about the catechism, we have to recognize and honor the fact that it's groups of churches. Not everybody holds to the same confessions we do. Not everybody in Christendom. And you can, hold to, you can disagree with things in the confessions. You can disagree with things in the catechism and, and still be a Christian, okay? You, you, you know what I mean? So do you see how it's kind of got, we go another step further? And, and, and so we have to, again, be aware of that and honest about that, all right? So we had Hillside Hold to three, okay? Um, the Belgic Confession, which was written in 1561. And again, the stories behind these things are so fascinating. You know, okay, we just, oh, the Belgic Confession, who cares? You want to know what's going on at this time? Guido de Bray is a guy, he's a pastor, all right? And, and he's in Belgium, Belgic Confession, okay? He's in Belgium, and what's happening is the Spanish Inquisition is going there, and a lot of Roman Catholics around. And the Roman Catholic Church, in light of the Reformation, is going, dude, if you don't believe what we believe, you're in big trouble. And, and there was threats of death. There were killings. There were any number of things going on. Protestants were killing people too, okay? So let's own that, all right? John Calvin had somebody burned at the stake. Um, he, because he was a pastor, he wanted to be kinder and have their head cut off so it would be faster. But the city said no. Anyway, so we, we all got a problem. But, but these Protestants in Belgium are starting to get killed. They're starting to, to get persecuted. And, and Guido de Bray says, we got to tell them what we really believe. You know how that is. I, I hate, one of the reasons I, I, dis, I dislike, one of the reasons I dislike parts of the internet is, is when people tell me what Christians believe. Right? Doesn't it drive you nuts sometimes? Oh, you Christian, you believe this. You're a Christian, you believe this. You're, I say, no, I don't. That's not what I believe. And, and, and so what Guido de Bray is saying, they're killing us. Let me tell you what we believe. Let me, let me give you, here's, here's the essence of our faith. This is what we believe, okay? This is not, we are not. Don't kill us. And, and, and so he writes this document, the Belgic Confession. Canons of Dort are, are very theological in nature, and I'm not going to deal with them today at all, okay? Then the Heidelberg Catechism, all right? I think the canons can be the most misunderstood. They are beautiful, they're wonderful, they're true. But they get misunderstood, and someday we should talk about that. But that's not for today. And then we have the Heidelberg Catechism, okay? The Heidelberg Catechism, which is, is the document we're going to look at. It's, it's the most popular of any catechism around the world. It is more published in different languages. And as we look at it, you'll see just the beauty of its language. 
and, and, and the way it directs us to Scripture, all right? So groups of churches adopted confessions and catechism. Again, not at the same level as Scripture. We need to recognize that, but still very valuable. And, and trying to say, why would we look at something? Uh, and, and again, all of these things, I, was, I brought this up here. This is called a Psalter hymnal. It's got songs in it, but it also at the end has all of our creeds and confessions. They're available by the doors. You may take one home. If you want to read all these things, you may take one home, and uh, that would be great, all right? So still very valuable. Three things that I, that I just have been saying that I want to just identify. First of all, they are valuable because they are faithful guides to Scripture. They're not in addition to Scripture. The purpose of, 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 the, of the creeds, the confessions, they are to guide us to Scripture, and we must always remember that. Second, they're helpful for our Christian faith and life especially the, the Heidelberg Catechism, because it asks over and over again, how does that help me? It, it, it talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and says, what, what, what does that help me? How does that make a difference in my life? And the question is asked over and over again. God is sovereign. Okay, so what difference does it make? And it is, it's so helpful because it, it takes biblical truth and it, and it guides us to what we ought to know in, in, in life. And then it, it identifies the core of the Christian faith and our understanding of it, and I underlined that, okay? We're talking about our understanding. I think it's accurate to the Bible, don't get me wrong, I don't want to undersell that, but let's be honest about saying that this is not the only way Christians understand all these things, okay? And, 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 and so we need to recognize. So those three things, that's, that's why I think the catechism can be really valuable. Now, before we look at question and answer one, and we're, really we're getting close to the end, I know I'm dumping all this stuff on you, but I want to touch on some dangers, okay? I want to recognize that, that, that through the years, confessions and catechisms can be, can be misused, all right? One is, I got five of them, they can become a replacement for Scripture. The fact is, it's easier to read 108 words and memorize 108 words than it is to memorize Scripture. It's easier, and sometimes we just kind of say, I just want to go there. And that's why I say over and over again, they are supposed to guide us to the Scriptures, and we must keep looking at what the Bible is saying. Okay, and, and so the way I would put it, and coming back to something we had talked about a little bit earlier, is we respect, honor and, tradi- we respect and honor tradition. And I think we need to, to do that. And I think that's a challenge for us in this country. We respect and honor tradition, but the Bible is final. And, and that balance is one I really want to, again, one of the things I want you to think about, because you will run into a lot of Christians, put something like that on the internet, and you'll, you'll run into is people saying, nope, the Bible is all I need. On the one hand, Absolutely. Absolutely, the Bible is all, is all I need. But friends, to think that we can ignore 2,000, this is where I come back to that question. To think we can ignore what the church has said through the ages, in my view, seems fairly arrogant. And, and, and we need to recognize that there are those who have gone before us. All right, so they can become a replacement for Scripture. They can focus more on our heads than on our hearts and our hands, Okay. They can be, they can, what do you need to know? That's kind of the way the catechism is often written. It's, it's learning. And, and again, it gets used this way. My mother-in-law, um, when she made what we call profession of faith, when she joined the church, what she had to do, some of you maybe had to do this as well, she had to memorize the 129 questions and answers of the Heidelberg Catechism. And when she went in to be interviewed, then they, can, is it okay if I just ask how many of you had to memorize the catechism like that? Anybody? Yeah, several of you. Okay. When she went in for her profession of faith interview, they said, question and answer, Gerla Haima, that was her maiden name, Haima, Gerla Haima, she didn't have the name Sylvia, apparently. It was Gerla Haima, question and answer 48. The question is this, 
And they'd read it, and they'd say, what's the answer? And she had to give it back. And, and I said to her, Mom, did they ask if you understood it? Nope. Did they ask if you believed it? Nope. They just wanted you to know it. So that's not, that's not good, okay? That's not the way this ought to be used. That's a misuse of this, and, and that's a problem. And, but using it well, it drives us into life. It, it becomes very, very practical. Um, they can be overly tied to the questions of their age. So when we look at some of these things, especially those that are in the 1500s, one of the big theological questions was, Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. How is Christ present in the, in the sacrament? How is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? And, and you, you've heard terms like consubstantiation and transubstantiation. And, and that was a big debate at the time. I don't think none of you have ever asked me about that. And, and, and so part of what we've got to do is we've got to recognize that there are sometimes, um, and in fact, I, I don't know if I want to confess this to you, but in one of these questions and answers, we're supposed to confess that we hate the, detest the teachings of the Anabaptists. We, I think we detest them. I, I don't detest, Anab- I love some of you who are Baptists. Um, you know, I don't detest, so some of that is, yeah, but in that time, in that kind, so we've got to understand that, okay? Okay, they have, they have those kind of things there. And, and, and that also ties into the next thing, that they can seek to answer questions the Bible doesn't answer. Trying to, to make distinctions that we shouldn't make about how is Christ present. The fact is, we just know he is. And sometimes our theology pushes us to try to answer questions that the Bible doesn't tell us how. Okay, and, and so we need to recognize that. And, and they can lead us to focus on differences with other Christians. All right. So why should we study a catechism? It brings us to, to us the wisdom and guidance of thoughtful Christians through the ages, and it guides us to Scripture. As we go through these things, I will do my best to say, and I won't be able to mention all the passages that are behind all this. I'm just guarantee you that. But it, it's a faithful guide to Scripture. It's helpful for developing our Christian life, faith and life and identifies the core of the Christian faith and our understanding of it. All right. Again, Heidelberg Catechism, real quick, 1563. The Platinate, that area, was divided at least into four religious groups. There were some Roman Catholics. There were some Lutherans. There were some Melanchthon Lutherans. There were some Zwinglians, some Calvinists. There were all these groups. And the, the governor of the area... A guy by the name of Frederick II assigns a seminary prof by the name of Zacharias Ursinus, 28 years old, um, and a group of others to write a statement of faith for the area. They wanted to, to say, this is what we believe. And that's what came up with the, the Heidelberg Catechism. There are three major sections. And again, friends, just knowing this, okay, just knowing this is, is knowing a good deal of the Christian faith. It is sin in the first section, salvation in the second section, and then service in the third section. You want to know what the Bible teaches? Sin, salvation, service. All right? That's the core of it. That's the core of it. We get at this in question and answer too. All right? What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Again, how do you experience comfort? How do you experience joy? The answer is I have to know three things. All right? First, how great my sin and misery are. And, And... I mean, we talk about that as saying, friends, until we understand that we are dead in sin, as Paul says over and over again. We are dead in sin. Ephesians, we just looked at that this summer. Dead in sin. Until we understand that, we'll not understand how much we need Christ. So first, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Salvation. I need to know how I am saved. And then third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. And that is, again, service. How do I respond to God's gift of grace? Not how do I get saved, 
but how do I live as a saved person? And, and the catechism is based, first section, and it's the sort, shortest section, okay? But it's in, essential. It sets the groundwork sin. Now, interestingly, we can go through a lot of scripture. The, the book of Romans, if you want to read this, Romans 1 to 3, Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, okay? The next section, Romans 4 to 11, Paul says, there is now, no, now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's all about, sanctifi- about salvation. And then he says, Romans 12 and following, he says, you know what? And now, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, let us offer to God our bodies as a living sacrifice. Okay? This is a scriptural outline, all right? That's the basics of it. 129 questions and answers, okay? What are the questions we're going to look at? I know, I know we're going. Um, It was going to be this week. It's going to be next week, although I'm going to end with it because I do want to give you just a beautiful way to begin the new year. But what is my only comfort? The second one we're going to look at is, is really three questions. Is it fair for God to be angry at us? I mean, God says that we have to obey all of his commands. God says we can't. Well, hello. If I'm mad at my three-year-old for not being able to drive a car, am I the problem? Is God the problem? The catechism says, what about this? Good question, right? Is it fair for God to be angry at us? What is true faith? I'm saved by grace through faith. I don't know if I have true faith. What does that look like? All right, 21. How are we saved? How does this happen? What, what happens to us? Question 80, or 60, rather. And then, why should we be good? <laughs> if I'm saved by grace, and I know I'm going to be forgiven... You know, can you imagine, some of you know our son Jake, he's a little bit of a wild card. If we had told Jake, you know what, it's all grace. (laughs) Oh my goodness, he was bad thinking we had law. I mean, right? (laughs) Why should we be good? Because it is all grace. All right, let's close. And and, and here's, again, I just want to give you a little flavor of the first question and answer and what we're going to pick up next week. But as we face a new year, all right, think about it. We don't know what's going to happen. For some of us, it's going to be a great year. For some of us, it's going to be a tough year. You think again about, I can't help but think about Dean and Kim Vanderhill and just what, what this year is going to be like for them. Question and answer one, this is the question. It says this, what is your only comfort in life and death? You could put it this way, what holds your life together? What will give you strength? As you face the temptations, what is it? And this is just the first part of the answer, but it is so beautiful. I've quoted it already that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. If you want one thing to hold on to as you go into the new year, it is that you belong to Jesus Christ. In the face of temptation, I belong to Jesus Christ. He has paid for me with his blood. I can give you a hundred scriptures to support this. We'll look at some of them next week, but I belong to Jesus Christ. I'm not my own. I'm not in charge of my life. I belong to Jesus Christ. He's holding on to me, and he's never going to let me go. I belong to Jesus Christ. As I was getting ready for this, I ran across what I thought was a really cool a really cool tool. It was called the Catechism Graduated Memory Booklet. Now, didn't that get you excited? By Reverend John Bowers, the Catechism Graduated Memory Booklet. But what he does is he does, and I've got some copies of just the first page. It's online. If you Google this, you'll get it. But he, he, gives, he goes through the catechism, and, and some of us have memorized different questions and answers. Uh, again, it's not scripture, but it can be so helpful. But what he does is he gives a beginner version, and then an intermediate version, and then an advanced version, and a full version. So here's, let me just show you what he does, all right? So the beginner version, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I belong to Jesus Christ. 
And if you go into the new year with that much, friends, it will give you strength and comfort and joy. I belong to Jesus Christ. I have been bought with his blood and nothing, Romans 8, can separate me. I have been, I belong to Jesus Christ. And then he gives the next one. Maybe you want to start memorizing that or have kids memorize that. And then he goes to the next one and it says this, that I, he adds, am not my own. We'll talk about that next week, but I am not my own. Friends, that sounds terrible to us in America, but it is the best news out there. It is essential for us to understand I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then the next one, he adds in, I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I have actually 10 of the first pages. If you want to pick one up, just talk to me afterwards. But friends, Scripture, if there is one truth in my view that is at the core of Scripture, it is this. If I wanted to put it down into the, the basics of what I believe, and if you want to talk about, you know, some of you know, testimonies, somebody asked you to give you your testimony, I'd tell you, you hit it out of the park if you just say, you know, I know what, my only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's Christianity. That's the gospel. That's what this book teaches us. And that's what you and I need to know as we go into the new year. Let's pray together. Father, we, we want to know you and, and we want to listen to your word. But sometimes it's hard to know what's at the core. So thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us. Thank you for the church as they have tried to distill these truths. And thank you for this little group in Heidelberg who so beautifully articulated what will give us hope and comfort and strength to make it through troubles and to stand up against temptation, that we belong to Jesus Christ. Father, may you just draw that, write that, etch that into our hearts so that we can know no matter what happens to us the rest of the day, in this week, this month, this year, the rest of our lives on earth, that it is okay because we belong to Jesus Christ. That is hope, that is life, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen.